Hello, and thank you for watching this session. A virtual hug to you all. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land I am on, the Camaragal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and to the traditional owners of the online space, Silicon Valley as well, perhaps. Um, thank you to the Newcastle Writers Festival for having us and making us get out of bed and put a bra on um, for the first time in days. It's different rules. You don't have to turn your phone off. You can chew loudly. You won't have time for questions at the end of this session, but you can use the hashtag NWFstories to you. We would love you to do that. So my guest today is Claire Bowditch, musician, writer, and storyteller. This is her wonderful memoir. I just loved it, your own kind of girl. And I read it when it first came out. I think it contains so much insight into um, life, uh, grief, loss, anxiety, music, love, and the power and the bravery to forge through. And we need it right now, right? So Claire, welcome, hello. Hello, Sarah, thank you so much for having me. Hello, Newcastle. And uh, before we go on, I too wanna to pay respects to the traditional owners of land upon which I speak, which is the Bunwurrung and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to all First Nations people here with us today, elders past, present, emerging. What an honor to be here. Yes, exactly. All right, now, look at this beautiful poppet on the cover if people haven't seen the book. <laughs> Rock, right? Um, take us back to her because you, you do take us back to her in this book. And I'm wondering if this was a way of reclaiming her in your adulthood and finding that essential self. Yeah, beautiful question. So that photo is a photo that was taken in my backyard by my sister, Anna Robinson, who's now a, quite a well-known portrait photographer. Um, she actually also took this photo on the inside of the book. Um, she's still taking photos, but she says that I was her original muse. I was a little bit of a smart aleck as a kid. And um, her and some friends were sunbathing in the backyard. And I did what I did, which is I went out and discovered comedy at a certain point in my childhood, I was a chubby kid and comedy for me became this way of accessing some sense of power and belonging and I just loved it. I just liked making people laugh. So out I went with my sonnies and I just um, did a little pose that copied their pose and Anna caught it. Um, but it became a lightning rod in a way for a reminder for me of the spirit with which I wanted to write this book, which is in that moment of confidence, regardless of our self-doubt and regardless of the things that are bashed us around in life, um, we have this spirit inside us of playfulness and possibility and hope. And that that spirit is the spirit that always led me back to um, to my healing, to being able to function in the world, to being able to be useful in the world. Mm. So I'm, I, I didn't know what the cover of the book would be. And my beautiful publisher, Kelly, um, from Ellen Nunn, when Kelly, Kelly Fagan, who was passionately with this book from the moment that, you know, we, we chatted about it for the first time. She saw that photo and she went, that is the one. And I went, ah, you are right. Mm. She felt, and I felt too, yes, it did embody a certain um, quality of resilience. So, yeah. and coming back to that essence of person, I think that we have that so much of life can strip away. Yes, this is a story, in fact, of, of that stripping away, of a forgetting. Um, it sort of, you know, I won't be spoiling the punchline to tell you that, um, <laughs> that um, if you haven't read the book, it's really about a promise that I made to myself at the age of 21, 22 on the tail end of a very um, severe, chronic, and fortunately one and only uh, nervous breakdown that I had when I was overseas that was 
in the run run up for years and years and years that I didn't understand. And when I started to understand it and I started to be well again, I made myself a hopeful promise, which is that one day I'd tell this story. I would recover. I would tell this story, but not till I was really, really effing old, like 40. And <laughs> so old. So old. Yeah, so, so old. So rude. So, um, which brings us to today. So it is a story of forgetting oneself and remembering oneself. Mm, yeah. And we might, you might even do a song um, for us about that period, which would be great. I hope you can't hear my son upstairs who I told to stay quiet, who's just started playing the bass guitar. Can you hear that? No, no but it's awesome. I wish I could hear it. I've got a dog scratching at one door and I've got someone rustling over in a corner. Um, it's school holidays here in, yeah. in Melbourne, so we get the Cocoa Pops on the school holidays. They are a particular kind of fruity cereal. Oh, will be high for them. <laughs> that's right. So there's, um, I could see the sort of packet being taken and, you know, the, the last crumbs in the bottom. We are like, oh, I can. when I was a kid, we just got the little baby packs. No, I've got a big one and it's just about gone. So I can hear all of that. Let's keep rolling. Okay, let's keep going. So um, I'm wondering that... You know, as, as we said, and we'll get to that point of this intimate portrayal of you as forging through this fire of childhood to adulthood and that time of coming undone. Um, what kind of response have you had before we go into more detail since you wrote it? Because I'm imagining a lot of people have come to you and gone, yes, I went through something similar. The I remember at the time I went through it, which was in the late nineties, we didn't talk much about mental ill health. I didn't even know that I was experiencing an episode of mental ill health. I just thought I was nuts and had no, you know, I just, I didn't understand. And I remember when I did have the guts to maybe talk to a friend of my mom's or, you know, someone um, that I'd heard about in my community, I grew up in Bayside, Melbourne, who'd had it, you know, which is similar to Newcastle in some ways. It's, it's away from the city, but we've got our own culture there, but we didn't talk about this stuff. So when I would bring it up, I would almost always get someone go, oh, me too, or ah, I know someone, you know. So that one in four stat we have about um, mental ill health, I think it's more like, you know, my experience has been it's more like one in friggin' 1.2. You know, there's a majority of people who at some point have this experience. And yet when I wrote the book, um, the volume and and intimacy of the DMs, the messages that I've had, the letters that I've had. Um, again, I just feel I was already ready to talk about it, but now I'm really ready to talk about it because I know how much it means when I hear stories back and I'm able to pass stories on. And it is that exchange with our readers that because I revealed more than you can reveal in one single song, um, they then reveal the same back to me. So that's been incredibly heartening it was a book with a pretty simple you know pretty simple idea about it which was there's this baton of hope that when we're in a difficult time which for many of us is right now there's always these clues about who we are and what's next and they can be very subtle but if you grab onto them and you, you and other people help you sort of understand what they are there's almost always an impulse in us to then pass that baton along and be part of a greater story. And I feel that's what we do with our books. It's certainly what I was trying to do with this book. Yeah, well, I, I bet. And, and, and because you've done it, people, then you become this sort of lightning rod for other people. But, you know, the little girl on the cover of the book went through so much and I really fell in love with your family reading this. Um, and they're an extraordinary family, but not even a beautiful, close family can protect you from the fact that, as you say, grief makes vessels 
of us all. I found that a really powerful line. When um, there is an absence, so we, we were, um, okay, you're going to give me one sec because we're going to talk about something very personal now, but my dog will not stop scratching. So I'm going to allow the beast in. <laughs> look at my bookcase for a moment, guys. Sorry. <sighs> and my washing machine's getting really loud now. This is a real live writer's chat with the Writers Festival. Can we meet your dog? He's in. He's in. Okay. The beast is in. Charlie the Wonder Dog. Check oh. that out on Instagram. What sort of dog is it? Groodle. Actually, it's Charlie the Wonder Groodle. I realised some other dude in New York or somewhere had Charlie the Wonder Dog as a hashtag. Beautiful, white, fluffy Groodle, you know, symbol. I mean, symbol of loveliness. When we were kids, we had a stray dog called Sam um, who we found on the street. My, I say in the book that my kind-hearted mother, you know, this dog just kept showing up and wouldn't go away. Um, and we had a beautiful, beautiful childhood. I'm one of five or 18 months apart and our parents loved us. And um, yeah, my sister Rowie died when we were young. She got really sick and passed away and it's 40 nearly 40 years and still when I think about our childhood and the disruption of it and the, the pain of losing her which I know many of you know so I'm not going to pretend I'm not crying right now it doesn't go away it is love we, we become these vessels of love and you know we hold um songs that become proxies this book becomes a proxy we're always looking for places to put that loss and make sense of it and um that's what I tried to do with this book again I had to speak about things that were still difficult for me to talk about and by difficult just means I still feel them very very deeply and um you know we taught them as professionals we don't <laughs> let those feelings through quite like this but there's no way around it it just is what it is so to learn to I mean that was the language I was brought up in which was this language of intensity you know a moment like this in time for kids like me adults like me feels familiar because there's a sense of urgency you know where the i've always known where the emergency exits are you know i've always been hyper aware i've always known that we've got to work quite hard to flip the hope into things so um this was the landscape in which i had to talk about because it was the it was in the things that I picked up and the stories I told myself in that time that my later crisis came. And it was, it was um, to go back and try and find words for childhood grief is always a challenge, but I was, it was an honor to be able to do it. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is that it also then had such an impact on you in terms of, you know, realizing the crack in the world that life is not safe for kids it's not always safe and i think our kids are really realizing that at the moment that so many of them have had relatively safe lives and yet still feel a lot of anxiety and now they know that life's not really safe right and and you felt this a lot also when you were growing up after your your you lost your beautiful sister that um the kind of power of when you lost weight, you also then got more attention. And this made you realise the crack in humanity, that, you know, people weren't perfect and, and the way that people responded to you. So you had so many kind of profound disappointments at such a young age. It, it was a... Um, look, I think another thing that I'm so um, inspired to talk more about based on 
what I've heard back from this book is so many of us have these relationships with our bodies that are quite revealing. As a child, I, was, I mentioned I was a chubby child, as Sarah said, then I, um, I went on a diet in the grade five school holiday, grade four school holidays, because I was sick of being teased. And when I came back thin, uh, yeah, all the adults who I really assumed knew what was going on suddenly were curious about my diet. And I realized, goodness me, we're very interested in this stuff. And that was such a lovely feeling to have uh, you know, this focus and attention on me. And it was so uncomfortable too, because uh, it was like I was inside this, this kid is in inside going, I'm still here. It's still me. I'm the same person. <laughs> and I think so many of us have this experience. It's no wonder we pick up the story that we need to control our weight because really it's deeply powerful and we're not idiots. We go where the power is because we're, we're human beings who want to belong. Yeah. But to talk ourselves out of that, um, I wasn't able to talk myself out of that as a teenager and it cycled like so many of you will know. Uh, and if you don't, God bless you because you are in the minority. Um, the diets were on and off and uh, the weight was up and down. I call it my piano accordion body. <laughs> and um, by the time I was 21 and in London, with that strong story of needing to go on that final diet that would solve this problem, um, that's where the real crap appeared. Mm. And and that is such a vulnerable time. I, re I was reading that and, you know, because a lot of Australians travel overseas, not now, uh, it's sort of this rite of passage. We go away to, to become who we want to be and to leave the family fold and the safety and the security and the, um, you know, total endless hopefully endless love of that in a good family as you had but you're so vulnerable when you're overseas and you're in your early mm. 20s it's just such an extremely vulnerable time you're isolated and you capture that massive kind of internal isolation that you felt there overseas um and that's where yeah as you say things become undone um and it is the age really where so much of your childhood comes crashing in doesn't it so so when you look back at that 20 year old now who looks so different to the little poppet on the front um where do you kind of find her within you now so she isn't it interesting that at the very and this is what happens so often at transition points it's a very point i was most vulnerable i left school my brain hadn't fully developed i was you know post addicted to ciggies and, and the, the high life, um, sleeping the least. It was also <clears throat> juxtaposed with my most ambitious, you know, before all of this happened, I was at my most ambitious. I was working at a call center, but I'd seen Jeff Buckley, the musician, play live and the, I was writing songs from an early age and, and suddenly the possibility of far out, I could, I could do that as a living cracked open in me and I started to be terrifically ambitious quietly in my diary with my lists while on the outside I was still working at the call center I didn't tell anyone I sang um, the voice in my loud my head was incredibly loud telling me that I was both destined for something great and a complete piece of poo who had no right to be here and and that argument hung on and so where does this 20 year old sit with me um that confidence and ambition is who you see on stage but it's tempered now with the brutality of life and you know accepting life on life's terms i used to think that i had to change suddenly look a different way and be a different way before i showed my 
myself on stage in the world. Um, but now I realise the probably the biggest gift that I offer as an artist is that we are very similar. Um, I'm just willing to say some things loud, um, you know, maybe five minutes before my audience are. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah, right. They, they, they invite me to do that by that exchange as well. So the 20-year-old lives in there as that buzzy little possibility of, oh, we can do something exciting. Yeah. Don't you think <clears throat> what's going to come out of this time now is the death of this sort of vacuous celebrity culture where we're <clears throat> just going to need people to, I think, because we've been stripped of so much, we're all kind of, <laughs> I don't yeah. know, we all relate to that 20-year-old <clears throat> that you were then, I think. Um, I wonder if it's yeah. going to be the time of a of shift in who we actually start to really look up to in the world and and we need those people who who acknowledge that vulnerability and that vacuousness and falseness I think now has just been exposed for what it is even more. I read an article the other day about the gift of that Gen X is how I'm a Gen Xer that we have. Um, I'm, think... Gen Xer. I'm on the end of it I think probably. <laughs> on the young side. I was, you know, we were, we were, we were there in the nineties and there was very little internet. We were bored off and we had to occupy ourselves. Um, and I, I remember, you know, I, I think you're spot on in what you said, Sarah. Um, I was thinking about the very first time that I did a, my very first television show. And on that show, there were these two young women who I had never heard of. Um, I wasn't sucked into popular, I wasn't interested in popular culture. Um, it was there on the fringes, but it wasn't my reality. I watched Friends and, you know, stuff like that. But so I didn't know who these two people were, who everyone was making a big deal of. And it was Nikki and Paris Hilton. And we shared a makeup <laughs> room. And I just, you know, the whole thing for me, it was almost sociological. I, I looked at, at, at the environment and interacted with these two women and I went, we are from different worlds. But I remember it was very much the, there was a change in trade. There was a change in manufacturing. There was a change in luxury goods around that time. And it started to ramp up. And my kids have been born into this world where, mm. you know, um, it's not just about brands anymore. It's about, you know, we're much more sophisticated in the way we market and the way we, <clears throat> excuse me, in the way that we, um, in, in, indoctrinate kids into the belief that there is stuff they have to have in order to belong. And that's full and flat in its face because actually we're all just human beings stuck in our homes alone at the moment. Some have bigger backyards. What yeah. about the people who don't have anyone with them at the moment? They don't have enough food at the moment. They don't like, so unless they are big hearted, unless those heroes are big hearted, we don't rate them at, you know, we, we can't in all justice and conscience um, yeah. call for the story anymore, the story of perfection that we've been sold. Nobody yeah. wants to buy Kim Kardashian's body wear at the moment, you know. Yeah, she, exactly. her and Kanye West, West may well be doing wonderful things behind the scenes that we don't know about, but yeah. we don't care about their luxury products right now. Thank you very much. No, I actually, I went to a book launch once and I didn't know what everyone was screaming about and that was one of the Kardashians. I can't even remember which one it was. <laughs> that's so true. I just love that we're living in a time where our heroes are the health workers, the truck drivers, the cleaners. That's right. Because I, I go into work sometimes and it's like, hello, cleaner. What do you yes, need? Yeah, the, Can yeah, I give the you dignity a and ability. Yeah. yeah. Someone who's showing up and actually their job is actually fundamental, essential and useful. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. artists and musicians and writers, they are um, essential in this time as well. We will never, ever, ever need more hopeful stories or truth-telling stories than we will need six months, 12 months from now. Like, we are going to be trying to work this out for the rest of our lives as a generation. Yeah. Um, that work is essential too, but right now we're in a fundamental stage. Okay. So this is the other thing. And, and maybe we should... Um, this may, like this is a time where artists are stuck inside. They're not performing. They're not doing their thing. Is it a time of creativity for you or frustration? Because I know you're going to sing us a song. It's so lucky. Well, you give me the you give me the nod when you're ready for a song. Um, but I, because I just happen to have a guitar here, and I'm very happy to pull it out. Um, but I was I was watching some friends, um, a wonderful musician called Tando on on um, Instagram quite late last night after I'd had a wonderful chat with author Sarah Wilson. Um, we were talking about anxiety that finished, I pushed live. And the conversation there was, well, there's a lot of pressure on us to create at the moment, but what if we just need some downtime? Like, so um, Tando was saying that yeah, for her, this is actually just a time as an artist that it's okay to have a fallow time as well. Um, whereas, a lot of us in our anxiety in the tours and shows that we had booked, you know, we're like, right, what next? We just convert it here. And we're working out who's doing that. Um, like I watched Woodford Folk Festival online last night. That was beautifully done. Um, we are seeing, we're having an insight into our artists and writers and, you know, public people in their homes that we never had before. So I think this is a precious time, but um, each artist is going to do it their own way. The thing that was worrying me two weeks ago was how the hell do we make sure everyone gets paid? Yeah. You know, we've got crew, we've got musicians, we've got um, people who need a fundamental living wage at this moment in time. So the government at this point uh, seems to be responding to that and has included them under, you know, the sole traders. And, and um, so anyway, the, the main worry that I had was it's great that our musicians and artists are keeping us hopeful in this time, but they are often the most vulnerable in terms of finances amongst the most vulnerable in our society. So unless they are able to function in this moment, I mean, writers, the average wage for writers is 13 grand a year. We know that. That was a study from three years ago. It hasn't changed. No, so anyway... There'll be some killer books that are getting written right about now, but I just want to also say you can have a break. <laughs> I wonder if there will. All right. So what do you think? Should we have a break and, and do a song? Yeah, oh. I think you should. Because, oh. you, you know, I was, I was looking through your book again and, you know, when you talk about Jeff Buckley and Patti Smith and the power they gave you in the music and just that sort of form of collective when you're in a room listening yeah. to music and, and, the, and they're articulating where you're at. Um, so you can give us that on our zoom chat which hey is brilliant uh, oh, excuse me while i just um <coughs> cough and clean my throat and what that was white thing came on the screen sorry about that um and, oh what's this oh it's my yeti from the side um kids are probably like not again mum i'm playing guitar i've returned to my guitar a little during this time which is really nice 
the song I'm going to play was a song that was based on the list that I wrote just before I went overseas. It was a list of all the things I wanted to do with my, as Mary Oliver, the poet would call it, one wild and precious life. Um, but I didn't know where to begin and I wasn't ready to tell anyone yet. So it's, it goes a little something like this. You want to write an album, make beautiful music, act in the theatre with inspiring humans, learn a language, run like the wind, help people fit in child to every country, make a million dollars minimum and smile when your children have babies, make God your home environment. two seconds in that I had a string out of tune and whatever whatever we're all pivoting we're all compromising right now that is so the song for now though because I was I was actually listening to it yesterday too and I was walking my dog and I was like this is the song we've we this we've got to put it all you know we all want this but we've got to be 
in that space right now. So thank you. That was just beautiful. <laughs> Claire Bowditch, I bet you're clapping at home while you're watching along. Um, fantastic. Look, I do think that you've got so much in here for the time we're in right now. It is a time of great anxiety. And you, um, for you, when you came back from overseas and, you know, those that sort of thoughts and song was wearing around your head and you discovered... Um, Claire Weeks, who has been rediscovered now. I heard that radio documentary about her. And so it's like this beautiful knowledge that I think you need to share the essence of with us to get kind of through this time of heightened anxiety. Back in the 1920s, a woman, an Australian woman was born called Claire Weeks. And she was one of these ambitious sort of women, similarly hearted to you and I and many of our friends out there in, in Cyberland. And she knew she wanted to do something significant with her life. Um, she was a scientist by nature and she studied, she was the first woman um, to get a doctorate from the Sydney University or University of Sydney, as it was called. Her doctor, original uh, doctorate was as a scientist in zoology. Um, she wanted to be a singer. She travelled overseas. She lived a full life. She was a very um, progressive woman in some ways and conservative in another. Look, in the after the war she became a GP she studied and again this is quite unusual to be a female GP and what happened was because of her own life experience and this is something we didn't know until later she became an expert in managing and treating people in what they called then nervous suffering and her voice was very much like this <laughs> Dr Claire Weeks and she was had a very cultivated Australian accent anyway I can't really do it well but she was you hear her voice on audiobooks um, which thankfully still exist, and you just say, oh, who is this woman? But she wrote a book that had a funny little title that became a bestseller, and um, it was called Self-Help for Your Nerves. And it was a book that had offered a simple technique for dealing with what she described as the physical symptoms, the physiological symptoms of anxiety. She very clearly um, pointed out, this is what it looks and feels like. She explained all of my symptoms. So I got given this book by a family friend when I was in the depth of my despair. Um, I had no understanding of what was going on inside me or that I had any power to actually influence it. What she taught me through reading this book, and I read it in a single night and I woke up hopeful um, for the first time in a long time, was that so much of the symptoms that we have, the shaking, the trembling, the racing thoughts, the um, feeling of despair and quick hopelessness, the, um, the intrusive thoughts, you know, that these are all symptoms of, um, in, to paraphrase, of a brain that's been flooded with the hormones of anxiety. It, it's not that the initial anxiety wasn't true. It's that then we got afraid of the feelings of the initial anxiety and kind of built a mountain of fear, which she described as a panic attack. So she used this technique in a book, became a bestseller because although she was derided by psychiatrists at the time, this Australian woman in there with the big boys who were saying, no, no, this, is, um, this has a deeper basis, which it might well have. But she said, no, I'm going to teach you how to deal with the physical symptoms of anxiety and therefore tre treated a lot of people in post-war Australia and throughout the world. PTSD didn't have a name then. That's what she was treating. Yeah. So her technique, which I call the FAFL, which stands for the face, accept, float and let time pass. And it's, it's her technique, which is um, get her book. They've gone into reprint. Um, I wrote my book last year, which coincided with 
Judith Hoare, who's a wonderful Australian writer who wrote a beautiful, the first ever biography of Dr. Claire Weeks. She had been forgotten through history. And it's one of the reasons I was so passionate about writing this book, because I knew we'd get to talk about her. So anyway, she, her technique um, is one of the things that literally saved my life. It was very simple. And I got to go into the deeper therapy later, but at that moment in time, when you're in panic, you really just need a technique to see you through. And hers did it for me. Isn't that amazing? She was such a woman ahead of her time and she's just profoundly helped so many then. I love that she's been brought back and rediscovered. But explain to us who Frank is because you've got your, your falafel. Yeah. I keep saying falafel. Falafel. <laughs> falafel. <laughs> One of the ways it <laughs> And you got your Frank. <laughs> Frank. So my mind. We've all got a Frank. I'll explain. We'll explain who it is. Don't worry. Um, I'm someone whose mind loves an acronym and I like lists, I like making order um, and I'm just on that sort of spectrum of people who, for, for me, this makes perfect sense. So everything becomes an a acronym for me. So there was the FAFL, but the second um, thing that really helped that I still use to this day and probably is one of the main reasons I've never had a recurrence of the acute anxiety that I had at that moment in time is because I was, you know, part of me was like this, I realized I was having a breakdown. My therapist then started saying it was a breakthrough. I said, no, no, this doesn't quite feel like breakthrough. Um, but I was reading all these spiritual books and I was reading a book by um, Jack Cornfield called uh, A Path with Heart. He was a Buddhist monk and he had a lovely playful tone, but I couldn't, I couldn't sit still for long enough to do the exercises. One was called Naming the Emotions. You were supposed to sit there and and say, you know, lust, 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 or whatever it was, name the emotion three times. I couldn't even work out what I was thinking. So I just decided I'd get an umbrella term for the bad feeling. And I called that Frank. I just gave it a name. I gave it a personality. And every time that feeling would descend on me, which was, you know, hundreds of times a day, it felt like, I started to dismiss it. Um, and I did that through saying, and I don't know if children are watching. So I'll just use the, the polite language. F off, Frank. Um, it was not, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Frank, which for me became fof. So I would quickly dismiss it. And look, this is a useful technique for dealing with anxiety that's acute or in the moment or just intrusive. You know, I think the, the aim of learning to understand our feelings and emotional life is to be able to be in conversation with it. But sometimes if you're just about to go on air or you are having trouble getting out of the car to get in the supermarket to buy oranges because you're so panicked, to tell you panic, to just F off, you're the boss, you're in control. It really calls on our higher brain. Um, I didn't know any of that. I just knew that it worked. And, and it's now, I mean, I realise now that it is a commonly used technique in CBT. Um, so I think intuitively we stumble on things at work if and we're open to it. That. We did, and you did that so much through this, and yet you still found voices that got you through, and I think you're one of them now. But, yeah, I think that's right. It's like, yeah, F off, Frank, I'll deal with you later, right? We'll come yeah. back to you later. Who's the boss here? I'm the boss. You? Frank and Corona right now, right? Because thank yeah. you very much. Um, yeah. I think it's a, yeah, it, it's, there's so many little tricks in here, or not even tricks, but, but things you came across and that Claire Weeks talked about, um, but you're not skirting the issues as well. And that's really important because you, you know, there's so much underlying things that we go through at the same time. Um, 
music is, as you said, and, and you know, it's so hard for musicians right now. Um, and yeah, we shouldn't expect them to perform for us and they might have to have their period where they're going through their own stuff. But I'm wondering what music you're listening to now in this period and what you're reading that you're finding really sustaining and helping F off, Frank. Awesome. Great question. So um, at the moment, our music, and this might, might not be what you might expect from a folk singer such as myself, but there is our music is around what we can dance to. So the last family event that we went to, oh, my gosh, I wish I had the evidence here. The last, fa- I don't, the last family event we went to was a Rick Astley concert together. And <laughs> this was together forever. Um, my eldest twin son had a passion for Rick Astley and we all did in our own secret way. And as a surprise, we, we got these wonderful tickets. You know, that was our Christmas, family Christmas present. Oh my God. So a couple of weeks later, much to our joy, um, a friend who works with the touring company must have organised it as a surprise. We got a signed picture of, you know, from Rick Astley, like a, it was the best singer. And so I'm framing them. Um, I put a picture of them actually on Instagram. It was just such a delightful little thing. So there's quite a bit of dance music, Rick Astley. There's a lot of Lizzo going on. There are a lot of sort of workout playlists. Um, yeah. uh, just music that's up. We're really using it as that kind of up. It's not a terribly introspective time just yet in our house. There are five of us, two cats and a dog all crammed in together. And, um, so yeah, I'm I'm also listening to a lot of Tim Pan Orange and and Harry Angus and the things that I you know the f- friends of mine who make music Mama Kin and Spender and just things that are making me reminding me that we are going to be together again and um, so beautiful Australian stuff. Yeah, that's hilarious. Did every did anyone know any other song apart from Never Gonna Give You Up at the concert or were they just sitting there at their list the whole time and then they were like just to that song. Well, you would be surprised. There are a few other uh, hits. Um, uh, Elijah, what are they? <laughs> We've got Together Forever. And there's Never Gonna Give You Up, is that one? And then Together Forever sounds surprisingly alike. But there are also yeah, a couple of great ones. I got angels on my side. Like they're so beautifully ambitious and daggy and glorious. Yeah. But his spirit, you know, it was actually a concert that was... Cedo Echo, who were fabulous, yeah. Rick Astley, and then Aha. And Aha played their album from start to finish. They have a very different, there was more brooding quality. Rick just brought it as a full entertainer. Um, and I heard that he's just announced he's putting on a concert for all the emergency and frontline workers. He's put a date on it, like October 23rd or something. Like, so his spirit, anyone with that kind of spirit um, is a win for me at the moment. Um, and in terms of books, you know, we actually, I actually haven't had enough quiet time to read, but I've got my list there. So I was very fortunate. I was supposed to be doing an event with um, Trent Dalton in a couple of, <laughs> in a month or so for his new book. Yeah. Um, have you which, got a copy of his new book? I've got a bloody copy of his new book. And can I just say, it is fantastic. It is fabulous. Um, so I'm reading that. And yeah, I'm being a bit of a bragger there because I'm a little bit upset that we don't get to do our event. So I may as well just talk about the book. Another, I mean, I I won't say any more except it is fabulous. Um, I'm reading Below Deck by um, uh, just another brilliant uh, Australian writer, Sophie, who's, um, I was going to say Rucastle. Sophie Cunningham? No, no, um, Sophie, is it Hardcastle? Oh, I haven't read it. 
Below deck. Oh God, I got. Hang on. I can't. Um, I I can't go any further without actually finding the correct. Okay. It's funny. Um, hang on. Up to the trashy TV stage. I, I'm finding it hard to concentrate. <laughs> I did read um, Tom Keneally's new book, which is about Plorn Dickens's younger son, who was sent to Australia when he was 16. He was a bit of a no hope but he'd never read any of Dickens's books, which I just love. And he came <laughs> on a cattle station way out west of New South, in western New South Wales. And um, I interviewed Tom Keneally the other night about it, and it was like. And he was like, who is it? Sophie Hardcastle. Oh, okay, fantastic. Below Deck. So it's a, be it's a beautifully intense, um, tender book. And again, you know, it's sort of adding, adding some, I'm just, I, I forget myself as I'm, I, I, you know those books where you feel connected to yourself and forget yourself at the same time? That's what it's been for me. Um, Tom Keneally's a good chat. Hey, I can't wait to see that. Gosh. He said he was walking through, he lives at Manly in Sydney, he was walking through the old cemetery that has people who had died from the plague and the Spanish flu. And, and I was like, well, take care of yourself, Tom. You know, 83, he hasn't been well lately. He said, oh, don't worry about me. I've drunk all the wine I can drink. I worry about the young people. You take care of yourself. <laughs> what a legend. He's a legend. So, I, yeah, I find it really interesting to find what people are listening to and I'm doing a dance every night on the radio at five past eight. We're doing the YMCA and the daggiest. Everyone get up because it's important to get your yayas out, I think, and, and dance mm -hmm. like nobody's watching. Um, but mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a time that your book is really... I revisited again this week and I thought, yes, right, so much beautiful insight in here and thank you so much for chatting to mm. us at the Newcastle Writers' Festival online. Claire Bowditch, it's brilliant. Um, I think there's an online bookshop people can go to on the Facebook page as well and you can buy it or download it. And um, it's really fun to listen to some of your songs at the same time while you're reading it. So I did that with when I read Debbie Harry's book. I'd read a chapter and then go to the song. Yeah. With um, so in the audio book we put little snippets of the song and my mum talks on it and that kind of thing as well. Now, darlings, before you go, there are two more books that are on my mind that might be useful at this moment in time. Pip Lincoln just wrote a book which is so glorious. It's called When Things Aren't Peachy, and Julia Bard wrote her book um, Phosphorescence. Two of they're just they're two gentle, you know. So anyway, the more books you can read, the merrier. We're yep. going to be all right in books, I think. Exactly. Such I'm an honour to be here. Yeah, I'm ready. So thank you for going to the, I'm so sorry, I keep cutting you off because we've got a little delay, but I just want to say thank you for making this possible and putting this on and um, I just so appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Claire Bowditch. And thank you everyone who's watching. Peace and love and all the best. Bye. Thanks, Claire. Love you. Bye guys.